This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or chaos, made possible by support from the Peace and Disarmament Education Trust. The young shining cuckoo is fed by its foster parents on insects and spiders. But the korimako, or bellbird, has a much more interesting diet of nectar. It's been something of a radio personality and has sung on shortwave radio to Australia and the Pacific nations for 30 years. However, the early recordings failed to reflect the versatility of the bellbird, with its wide variety of liquid notes and artistically placed clicks and bell-like sounds. It's not surprising that Maori mythology describes Korimako, the bellbird, as the messenger of Tanis, sent to herald the coming of the sun. Good day, friends. We have with us Jim O'Malley, and this is my first day in the new station, the new building. Oh, good to have you with us, Jim. Yeah, Kira Marvin, it's nice to be here, and it definitely is a lovely-looking new building, I must yes, say. Yes, it is. Yeah. You st- stood for the uh, Needham electorate as an MP for the post of MP in the last election mm-hmm. which uh, and you did he re- got a respectable number of votes a thousand votes a little over uh, why did you decide to stand and um, can you talk about that well, thanks Marvin um, a lot of people have said I stood quite late um, I, I would say that uh, I actually did enter the race you know, before any of the debates had started, but I was about two or three weeks late compared to the others putting up my posters. Um, the reason I decided to stand in the end was I felt we needed to challenge the narrative that being a safe Labour seat in some way or another gives us a reward. I had seen the actions of the Labour Party in government as it relates to the city, and I said in my original um, press release that the hospital had been the final straw, but it wasn't the only one. Um, a good example was when the Shovel Ready plan came out. We had well over $10 million worth of requests that we sent to the city and we had workers ready to go, or we sent to the government, and we had workers ready to go, including finishing off the shared um, pathway past Portobello. And a Cabinet decision from the Labour Party or Labour government was to give us nothing. So there's a number of times that we have requested stuff and we are told that we are not a city, we are just a town that the Labor government was not interested in investing below Christchurch in terms of city investments, and I felt it was time to challenge that. And I also wanted to challenge the fact that Labor, in my opinion, is no longer a left-of-centre party but was centrist. I guess that's one of the big questions for the election and the outcome. Could you comment on the outcome of the election and why the right-wing parties 
beat the center parties so heavily. Notice the uh, center parties. Um, this, I came back to New Zealand about just a little over 10 years ago. It was actually just as the presidential election that returned Trump came in. It was about six months after I came back here. And what I noted there was that the Americans were sick of the centre and they were looking for some rather radical response. And the Democrats did not pick Bernie Sanders and, in fact, they blocked his being picked. So the radical response on the left was left was gone and the only radical answer now was on the right and that was Trump and the Americans voted for him. People said the Americans chose right-wingers. They they were choosing change and they were frustrated with the centre. I would argue that in many respects a lot of that has just happened in New Zealand. I thought that the American election was interesting and the reaction of uh, liberals in New Zealand and elsewhere was interesting. It was also interesting. For instance, the uh, center conservative that the Democrats uh, picked, um, Clinton actually, she called her, the people that voted against her, deplorables, <laughs> which says a lot about her attitude toward uh, opposition and also toward the working class. Mm-hmm. And many people, well, I've mentioned to a, a friend of mine that um, many of the people, especially in the Rust Belt, have voted for Obama twice before they voted for Trump. Mm-hmm. And this person couldn't believe that. This person believed that they were all deeply racist and that was the only reason for mm-hmm. uh, voting, the, why they switched votes. Mm-hmm. So that was an interesting conversation, I thought. I think it's the conversation that people will often have when they've just been handed a major defeat if they're not going to look at themselves as contributing to the defeat, then they're going to have to come up for a reason that suddenly all these people voted against them. Well, this person was actually not terribly party political and was a New Zealander. Oh, well, I think New Zealanders view American politics as a soap opera to watch from a distance, and I actually don't watch it. Having lived there for 25 years and voted in five presidential elections um, and being actively involved in politics there at the state level in Connecticut... Um, when Pfizer laid off people and I started to try to get a state response there. I, I, the, the way the New Zealand media covers New Zealand, uh, um, American politics is, is pretty poor, to be honest. They really just go into the themes and they don't go into the f- facts underneath. So I'm not surprised at that person's position, I guess. Why do you think the Labour Party did so poorly? Um, there'll be a statement out there that, that, that people were sick of po- uh, advanced policies and they, and, they, and they had a right-wing twist back. I would argue that, that the reason that I ended up standing in the North Dunedin, or in the Dunedin seat, as it's now called, um, was people were getting frustrated with new policy coming out that was half thought out and, they were, and Labor was simply not listening to any feedback. And, and every time you gave feedback... It was very much treated in the same way that that person just spoke to about the Rust Belt. You were immediately put into a pigeonhole of being a racist, of being um, someone who doesn't like progressive policies, and, and often as not, you were quite badly smeared by the Labour Party if you challenged them in any way at all. 
And I think people got frustrated by what was coming back to me, the term and the word coming back all the time was arrogance. Do you have... I have a feeling, and I, I listened... I mean, I heard Matt McCartan's uh, response to the labour loss and the fact that labour was not connected at all to the working class mm-hmm. and to some extent disrespected the working class. Mm-hmm. And... <clears throat> I had a, a, a strong feeling I agree with them <laughs> about that. I, yep, I would. Is there a sense that um, the average working class person um, feels disrespected? And is there a sense of a minor cont- amount of contempt for ordinary people from the uh, metocracy? <laughs> well, I mean, I think if you look at um, look at the Labour cabinet in the previous government and ask you yourself, what do you think the household income of any one of those members was? Do you think any of them could be called working class? Um, I don't think that I don't think that the way the Labour Party's been internally picking its candidates for the last 30 or 40 years has resulted in anything other than a separation between the party and the group that they're supposed to be representing. So, yeah, I do believe that Labor has very little respect for the working class and they just turn up every three years to ask for a vote. And I think, you know, as covered in a piece that Chris Trotter put out, just that you sent to me, um, that voter group, though, is so loyal... That it doesn't, that Labor doesn't even have to address it, and it will still get its votes. And they and they feel probably they've got nowhere else to go. But but by giving Labor the votes all the time, and then not getting what they should be getting from Labor, they're also creating a rather bad contract between the vote and the party. So yeah. Why do you think Labor and and is there a similarity between the Labor Party and other uh, centre? Social Democratic parties. I'm not sure if you can call them Social Democratic parties well, anymore. Well, but is there a sim- do they have similar problems? Well, if you look at Stamer in the UK, I don't think he's going to be um, particularly union friendly if they get in. Um, so I think the Labour in the UK and Labour in New Zealand are very similar. And of course, you know, past Prime Minister Ardern did her internship in Tony Blair's office, so you can see the cross pollination right there. Democrats in the United States, I was a registered Democrat, but I knew many people on the left who wouldn't even register because they were so disillusioned with how centrist it was. Um, Trudeau in Canada, Macron in France. I think <laughs> the malaise is across the whole of the Western world. Doesn't that put dem- democracy itself in, uh, in a difficult position? I think when you ask me that question and, and when I was coming on this morning... My commentary was going to be around, actually, the role of the fourth estate in democracy. Okay. Um, A good example would be, you know, you you asked me about my thousand votes that I got. Well, I went up on on the platform that I sort of just outlined to you there, that that we weren't being well represented and also that we needed a new centre-left. I gave that as a press release to Radio New Zealand, to Stuff and the ODT. Stuff and the ODT picked up the the candidate statement, but didn't pick up anything around the left to centre statement. Radio New Zealand picked up none of it. Now, we had... I went to eight political debates in Dunedin. The ODT didn't attend six of them. One of them had attended it sent a junior reporter in Waverley, and that junior reporter quite literally gave one line from each candidate 
and that was the total summary of that debate. Then the Opahol debate, um, finally, um, the political report of Neodity turned up. So he turned up to one debate out of eight and gave a very, in my opinion, inaccurate coverage of the debate itself. So by the time the Fourth Estate is not doing its job, how can democracy perform correctly? The problem is if the Fourth Estate isn't doing their job, you've got somewhere else to go, only it's getting even more partisan. Social media media is just, there is no filter, so anything can go anywhere. But even if you look at the media commentators, they're just commentating on each other. You know, not one of them has ever talked to a candidate, as far as I can tell. I wonder about, especially when it comes to local stations, the rules. I mean, uh, by tradition and also by the media rules, um, you can't favor one candidate or mm-hmm. one party over. Yep. Which means that either you have to interview a lot of candidates or no candidates. Yep. And that's difficult for local stations. Well, what they did in most of the debates was they made me the exception because of my role on the council, and that is they only interviewed um, candidates... Well, they only took people who were from parties that gained more than 1% in the previous election, and then me because I came in from the council. So they had a rationale for selecting that down to six people, and that's a, that's a doable number because I remember that Otago Access Radio did run, when I ran on the mayoral campaign... Um, they did run every mayoral candidate through by doing interviewing two at a time for six interviews. Yeah, yeah. And yes, you have to do that. But you know that didn't stop people like the Standard calling me haphazard, and it didn't call didn't stop the ODT calling me frustrated. And I'm like, you haven't even talked to me, and you threw those in. So there is still bias out there in the media. You know. Well, I guess. It's- and you could have. I mean, isn't there a lot of similarity between the people that run the Labour Party, for instance, and the people that run the media? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think maybe everybody's getting, maybe getting a bit complacent in their job. Um, but, but the media and the, and the political parties, is a different kind of thing going on there, I think. But I think with the media, it is an under-resourced entity um, doing sort of winging it. And I, and I see in the TV interviews that were going on in this last election, it looked so much like an antipodean version of American television. We were doing presidential debates, and we don't even have a presidential system. Oh, that's one of the things I found interesting. It came up a bit on the radio, but they acted like this was a presidential election. Mm. They do it in local politics, too. They keep calling up the mayor. Right? And nobody else. It's like the mayor sitting by a council all on his own, or her own, depending on the council. And the same with this. The leader of the party is the only person that seems to matter. I suppose it's easier in some ways. But it's but it basically it says then that the others simply do not have a position worthy of media interest. Yeah. It allows you to have a pretty shallow party, doesn't it? Because you only yeah. have to have one person. I mean, you get shallow um, information that way. I mean, you... Yeah, and then it gets down to personalities rather than the quality of the of the um, of the policy, which is the other thing that comes out of this. And, and you know that is the bad side that came out of the way the American media moved. And I think we really have to be quite careful that we're not going to go down the same path. There's a um, 
column, I think, is the fact that uh, economics and class is very seldom really talked about. Economics and class. Class. Inequality. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, um, <laughs> when a couple of labor uh, members of parliament actually wanted to make an election issue and talk about what the um, leader of the Labor Party, who was overseas at the time, said, no, we won't talk about this as long as I'm prime minister, mm. in a very democratic way, of course. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's, I think that's where I felt a bit frustrated in this run on the Dunedin seat, because I was actually making that point as I ran, and quite literally nobody picked it up. So... I think that's really uh, poor because the, all of the local media know that you're on the left. Mm. Well, that, of course, makes you a bit of a threat to the existing um, structure on the left. <laughs> Sorry. Um, partly that. I mean, I just, think, I just also think that we've got into a rather lazy kind of reporting structure. Um, and, and, you know, I've seen that in reporting of local politics since I've been on the council. It's never particularly in depth. It's it's it, the reporter only has thirty minutes to an hour to write a story, and so you get very light stories. And I have asked. I remember going to the features writers writers in the ODT asking, "Will you do a proper feature article on the economic reforms around Three Waters?" And the answer back was, "We've written enough about Three Waters." No. One of the um, questions I have for the Labour Party, which is that. Um, they seem to be willing to talk about, unwilling to talk about economics or class, but even economics itself in mm-hmm. a serious way. So what will they talk about? And what does interest uh, labor MPs and what interests the so-called center-left? I guess maybe the challenge that the real left has always had in New Zealand is that New Zealand itself is a relatively conservative country. We... I do think we look after each other well compared to other countries, but we are intrinsically conservative, and that means that the centre is quite conservative. And if you are a true left party, you have to you have to deal with that hit on your popularity all the time. So I think they've gone after that centre conservative group, but with too much attention, and they've forgotten their own base. And now there's now their attention is sitting right in the centre, and therefore. They can't do transformative politics because they don't actually communicate with people who need it. And they haven't filled their party group up with politicians who speak that way. And any politician who does speak that way ends up leaving the Labour Party. I think the last time we had a politician, certainly a prime minister, spoke that way was Norman Kirk. <laughs> I think you might be right. Um, you know, to be honest, and, and Jim Anderson was probably the last of that breed that tried to stay in the game yeah. and, and couldn't get anybody to move along his argument line. And I feel that me poking my head up above the parapet this time, it appears that the battle conditions are just the same and you'll lose your head if you poke it too high. People are so loyal to their past that it seems impossible to get them to change their behaviours. I guess one of the things that uh, I think that when I would think about the Labour Party is changing is when they admitted they might have been wrong in the uh, 1980s. If they, it seems to me 
that if you make a mistake, you'll never rectify it until you made, you made a mistake. The first part of ever changing is to acknowledge you made a mistake in the first place. But I have a feeling that now they make those statements about the 1980s like it was another party. It was them. You know, they can't go and put the blame on anybody else. It was Labour. And it was Labour who started all of this. And, and therefore, it is up to Labour to be the party that reverses it. They did nothing in the last six years to reverse that. And, oh, well, OK, so they changed the minimum wage. They put more money into some aspects of community. There's no doubt about that. They were definitely reversing a lot of the stuff that National had done before. But they didn't fundamentally do what they needed to do, which is to bring in the right amount of income to run government properly. They wouldn't change the upper taxation rates dramatically. Minor changes in very high brackets. And, you know, I was on, on all those debates that were local debates in Dunedin. Every time Rachel Brooking got asked, why won't you bring in a capital gains tax? Everybody asked it, and yet Labor is refusing to do it. So who are they? Who are they trying to appease? What did she say? Oh, it's Labor policy. I can't do anything about it. Which was my whole point about if you want a candidate to stick up for your city, they can't be caucused before they've even been elected. Okay, I might play a bit of music now um, from Tom and Jode uh, from the uh, Great American Depression. Walking along the railroad tracks Going someplace and there's no going back Highway patrol choppers coming up over the ridge Hot soup on a campfire in the bridge Shelter line stretching around the corner Welcome to the new world home Sleeping in the car in the southwest No home, no job, no peace, no rest Well, the highway is alive tonight Nobody's kidding nobody about where it goes I'm sitting down here in the campfire line Searching for the ghost of time trip. Prayer book out of his sleeping bag Preacher lights up a butt and takes a drag Waiting for when the last shall be first and the first shall be last In a cardboard box near the underpass Got a one-way ticket to the promised land You got a hole in your belly and a gun in your Sleeping on a pillow of solid rock Breathing in the city aqueduct The highway is alive tonight Waits hit it, everybody knows I'm sitting down here in the campfire line Waiting on the ghost of Tom Jones
as a cop beating a gun Where you're hungry and the bone, baby, cries There's a fight against the blood and hatred in the air Look for me, mom, I'll be there There's somebody fighting for a place to stay A decent job or a helping hand Maybe somebody struggling to be free Look in the eyes, mom, you'll see me The highway is alive and Nobody's getting nobody about where it goes I'm sitting down here in the campfire line With a ghost of old time Joe We're talking with Jim O'Malley, a Dunedin City Councilor, also a candidate for uh, Parliament. And you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz, then going to podcast, then going to community or chaos. Well, it appears to me that Political activists and politicians, but political activists generally and politicians, do a lot of talking past each other. Mm-hmm. And also that the um, that we seem to be in a the politics of of um, subtraction instead of the politics of addition. Mm-hmm. That everybody's got their own um, place where they're it's important to them. Their mm-hmm. their identity could be sexual in any ethnic or, and that's where they basically stand. Mm-hmm. And when we and it's hard as because people because of the language and so on, it's very difficult to talk about issues without talking past each other and also um, without um, stepping on some very tender toes. Mm-hmm. Do you have any Do you want me to comment, comment on that? Yeah, um, yeah well, I, I refer to it sometimes as digging foxholes and then throwing grenades at each other. Um, we have turned into an environment in politics um, where I believe it's acceptable and, and considered normal behaviour to have a position which then doesn't move from that day on and it cannot be influenced by those who don't hold your position. And I felt that 
when that gets to that point, then there is no ability for um, any any development or any um, colouring of these positions, and therefore they can't mature. And so we sit in a place where we just quite literally shout at each other. One of the other things I think affected this may be the fact that these become narrow issues, and it becomes and broader issues that are also important, like economic inequality, like class, like uh, people not having enough food to, mm-hmm. to eat, or like no housing, uh, are easier to ignore if we're concentrated on these single issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't want to... This is a tricky area to, to work into because it, it's, it is quite literally like... Being told to run across a lane minefield and expect to get to the other side without being injured. Identity politics plays an incredibly important part in the development of our modern society. There is absolutely no doubt about that, and I wouldn't want to walk away from what's going on there. But it is, to some extent, when you are a fiscally conservative government, like the Labour Party was, it's an opportunity to get away from the fact that you've got to also do another hard part, which is social equality. And social equality is centred heavily around wealth distribution and equal distribution of wealth. That is a much harder political environment to be in, to be honest, than identity politics. So people, in my opinion, have walked away from the hard ground and they've gone over to this other place. And as you're quite right, then they speak right past each other. Yeah. Do you think this is one reason the Labour Party was talked about transformational policy and yet accomplished very little? Well, that's where you ask yourself the question, so what was transformational? If you didn't achieve... Well, and here's the deal. Some areas were transformational, um, but the other ones, again, I think, I think that the social inequity in New Zealand has got to the point where it can no longer be ignored. And therefore, if you are ignoring it, then you are not doing anything transformational because, the, because no one can care about something if they're hungry and cold first. Also, the hungry and cold aren't represented. No, like I said before, if you consider the cabinet and look at their background and the, the level of household wealth that those people have and have come from, there is not much experiential knowledge there when it comes to poverty or hardship. Well, one of the things I noticed, and I'm going back again, probably you might say, uh, you know, I might be going in circles, <laughs> but... I was around in the 18, I mean 1980s. <laughs> Even you're not that old now. <laughs> in the 90s. And the Longy Douglas government was the most well-educated government we've ever had. They had more, mm-hmm. certainly at that time, they had more people who had master's degrees. And almost all of them had been to university. Mm-hmm. But they're the same ones that made their the future uh, students pay for their education. Yeah. And as far as um, what happened to the working class, I don't think the working class has ever, it's not since the 1930s has the working class experienced such a disastrous change in direction. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the other unfortunate consequence of that is when your left of centre party or you let, we thought it was a left party at that point, when it, when it betrays you to that level, 
you can't go to the other party because they're further to the right. So you're caught in the situation of dealing with a party that has disappointed you and betrayed you or going to the other side and making it even worse. And we've had to deal with that now for a number of generations. But I do think you hit it on the head because others have pointed it out too. And ironically, it was apparently Jim Anderton who was talking about a better educated kind of candidate, is that by the time you end up with your whole policy set being designed by people who have only been from a privileged background, it's no surprise that they started doing what they did. And then they chose in two government sets since then, so Helen Clark's government and then Jacinda Ardern's government since, not to reverse any of it. So they are now committed to what they did in the 1980s, and I think we need to call them out for that. Oh. The problem is you don't get heard when you call them out for that. Well, as I said, if you go to eight events for the local election and the ODT really only sends a political reporter to one, I, there was another one that ran a story on it and they didn't bother to turn up and they wrote a story on, on Michael Woodhouse who wasn't there. <laughs> so by the time you've got that level of poor quality reporting, how can you bring anything that's at all sophisticated out into the political environment? Should we be talking about um, the common good? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. But, but when does that become a topic? You know, when in this debate that you saw anywhere in this election was anything like the common good being brought up? Well, it didn't happen. Right. And so we do need to be talking about it. I think, I think people in the heart know that, and that's also where there's a frustration in the population. You know, and I'm sure people are going to leave this election, well, maybe National Party supporters won't, but everybody else is going to leave this election going, it was a disappointing election in many respects, including the way that the public voted. To me, the, the common... I'm a... You know, I'm... I'm from the left, I'll admit. Mm. Um, I've been more or less a democratic socialist all my life. Mm-hmm. But to me, the, the common good and the discussion of it is even wider than socialism because the common good, we're in a social crisis and we're also in an environmental crisis. Mm-hmm. It isn't just a crisis of climate change, it's a crisis of resources, a crisis of what's happening to this planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're destroying the marine environment all and, the time. you know, as well as and land. frankly, everybody getting electric cars is not going to solve the problem. Oh, no, but at least it gets rid of one problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, you're quite right. And, and so that's, that's a sustainability question. But sustainability is part of the common good. Mm. And it's also really when we talk about the common good, we, we have to talk about all the people, but we also have to talk about nature. The mm-hmm. part, the nation, the plan mm-hmm. that we're part of, but this conversation is not really happening to some extent. Some people will talk about the environment. Some people will, may talk about tax reform. But mm-hmm. you rarely get a a real discussion about how it all fits together. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to an interesting talk at the local government New Zealand conference a few months back, and it was the Welsh minister. For she's the commissioner, sorry, for I think it's called Commissioner for Future Generations. And all decisions that come out of the Welsh government now have to go through this commission and it has to explain how the, act, the action that's being proposed is good for 
future generations. Um, and she gave some very interesting talks about how they brought stuff in that's been really good and also blocked stuff going through because, in fact, they couldn't meet the requirement to prove that future generations weren't harmed by what they were doing. It's a great thing to bring into your system because it makes you, you must now think three generations into the future. And that starts addressing all these things if you start thinking along those lines. How do we make that happen? Oh, I had my best shot at it a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> um, it is so dependent on the quality of your media. If our media does not pick that up, then it doesn't happen. That is the reality of it. And, and I guess if I was to say where I would put my pressure in politics now, I'd put it back on the media and say, are you doing your job properly? Are you actually giving these ideas the amount of ear they need? And are you doing the right analysis? And are you checking the facts? Of course, they might reply that we're not given the tools and we're not giving the... Uh the finance actually do a good job. And that's true. And, and as much as, again, thank you to the Fourth Labour government for doing that, the government used to put money in to media to make sure it could do its role. But let's put it to the free market. Or well, as soon as you put it to the free market, its role then is going to be much more narrow and effectively giving us what we've got now. You cannot rely on the market to feed the media properly. It's not going to be able to do it if it's going to do a good job. Yeah, it seems to me for the media you've got a choice you can either have a well-funded public um, media or you've got a, a media that's dependent on the free market for advertising and everything else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that puts some constraint even at the, at the best of time, the best of will. I would say that, again, I can't say the Labour government did nothing while they were in there. So they did come up with the local democracy funding for the media and New Zealand on the air is a very important um, funding contributor. And obviously maybe you just need to make that bigger. Um, but on the other side, Radio New Zealand has come under attack again and again and again. And, you know, they're down to when they film you for an interview, they've got their phone in their hand. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're doing everything on the smell of an oily rag. So how can you then expect quality journalism out of that? And that's therefore the government has to step in and do something, but it won't. This crisis is going to grow worse, isn't it? Yeah, I, I feel that having lived in the States and watched the political stuff unfold there and all the social change unfold there and then see it go to the UK and unfold in exactly the same way and now seeing it come down here, it's got exactly the same pattern to it, exactly the same pattern to it. ACT is getting more and more powerful, right? Because why? Because of the way the media is operating in New Zealand is identical to the way it operates in the United States, except it's doing it 20 years later. So I'm very worried for the future because I don't really think that we'll be able to maintain this for much longer before we'll, go, we'll slip over like the others have. I mean, well, part of the problem is if you are not willing to uh, raise taxes in a more equal way and not willing mm. to raise the amount of taxes, your infrastructure, whether it's health or education or media... It, over time, it deteriorates. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't improve unless you find a way of raising money. This is something that Bernard Hickey's been bringing up. He brought up a few times during the election, but again, nobody seemed to pick it up. Um, if you keep boosting your economy by, by bringing in people, um, 
and you haven't gone and spent on the infrastructure to house them, the three waters that are required, the transport requirements to move them around, then you end up putting a future liability onto your country, which has been laid on us quite badly. And we are grossly behind on our infrastructure spends um, as a consequence. I mean, you think of all the things you actually need for climate change, like a decent rail system, like mm-hmm. maybe um, a coastal uh, shipping. shipping. All this stuff takes money, and, uh, and the greater the crisis, the higher it is, to, the longer you wait, the higher it is to, to replace. Yeah, and actually, we're, it's funny you say that, because I was in a, a meeting at the ORC yesterday talking about, we're trying to get up public transport to interface correctly with the cities that the ORC deals with, which is Queenstown and Dunedin. And Alexa Falls from Queenstown was saying, you know, what they're trying to do is they're trying to get the public transport in ahead of the development so they don't end up what they've got up with Ladies Mile, but now they can't put it in. And I've been saying the same thing for Dunedin and trying to get our spends. We want to have those things that are going to be good for city livability and for climate change put in place before we need them because it's so much cheaper to put in then than it is when you put it in afterwards. Well, you can see what's happening in Auckland, why there's why it's so difficult to to bring in uh, public um, rail. And, and I feel, I, my main fear is going to be that Labor was always Auckland-centric. Well, National is even more Auckland-centric. So we, we, I don't know how we'll go in getting anything we need in this area. And it's sad that the lower South Island, you know, geographically a quarter of the country is quite considered now as, as not worthy investment and actually not worthy of considered to that it has any urban areas at all. So we are going to be really hampered in responding to climate change. Well, what, how do you... I guess one of the things that you, you would talk about is that... Uh, to get the attention of the Labour Party, you probably need to um, have a population that's willing to vote for other parties. Yep. We quite literally just told Labour that we are so loyal to you that even though you took $90 million, didn't fund the missing $90 million in the hospital and now it's become apparent that that was an absolute mistake, that you gave us nothing during the period of shovel-ready. You gave us nothing during the $6 billion infrastructure spend. You don't believe that rail investment should go below Christchurch. And we just turned around and gave you an even bigger vote than before. So, in terms of the candidate vote. So, what do you expect them to do? They don't have to serve us, and we'll give them the vote anyway. The, of course, the problem with that is that the most of the other parties are, are doing the same thing. Yeah, so there was an old South Park comedy um, one on when Hillary Clinton was running against Donald Trump and Mr. Garrison was the Donald, Donald Trump character. And the boys turn around and say, our problem is we've got a juice between a douchebag and an asshole." Sorry for the foul words on TV, but I'm only, I'm only, only repeat, repeating what was on TV. The main issue we're having to deal with now in New Zealand, and it is the main issue that's going on the whole West, we have to deal with a centrist party or a right party. And, we, and so what's your option? I'll take the centrist because it's less bad than the right. But that's all you're dealing with. No one is voting with enthusiasm anymore for the so-called left party. 
because they don't feel it is left anymore, because it is not left anymore. But you can't vote for the other one because it only gets worse. And that's where we are in our democratic state at the moment. Do you think that if we had a left party that we would do better than... We, we're trying to have a left party with the alliance, a new Labour Party. Mm-hmm. And partly because within the, the alliance itself there were splits, but partly because of the nature of the media. Mm-hmm. Um, as soon as Jim Anderson wasn't in it, why... It, just disbanded, went over the place. Well, we lost, you know, we, it was before we had MMP, to be fair. Mm-hmm. But we just didn't have anybody in Parliament after that. Yeah, and I think that that's the danger of setting your party up around a single person as well. I mean, they play an important role, but you're so dependent on them mm-hmm. that if you lose them, then you've lost everything. So the first thing you need to do on the left form a new left, in my opinion, is you've got to make sure you've got at least half a dozen people who could all carry the baton. Um, and that's why I was setting this thing up as a 2033 movement, you know, 10 years out to do it, because if you try to do it in three years, you will fail. And I look at TOP as a good example. A party that's tried now in three elections still failed um, and ultimately doomed to just wither and die. Um, and I think that's why I would not want to go forward with the formation of a new party until I was confident that its roots were in the ground and that it was in a solid place. And you then have to accept that to do that, it takes time. One of the problems, of course, the left faces is that the union movement itself, which was a big factor in supporting the mm-hmm. left, has fallen on hard times. Mm-hmm. Very few. Most working class people are not actually members of the union. Of unions, no. And unions themselves have less confidence and perhaps are even less left-wing than in the past. Mm-hmm. Certainly I think the lost confidence is part of it. I mean, I was absolutely surprised when Cadbury's was closing how difficult it was to get the unions involved and they were more worried, those particular union people were more worried about upsetting the Mondelez management than they were about having a scrap with them. And I was thinking, well, you've kind of not my grandfather's union anymore. He was secretary of the Watersiders Union. Um, you're a very different union now. Those guys took on mounted police, and you guys won't even take on a manager in a suit. So, yeah, the unions are not what they used to be. Yet I'm very loyal to them, and I want them to get stronger again. So I remember being at the Regency Theatre when they were bringing in the Employment Contracts Act. Mm-hmm. And it was actually some of the um, leaders of, at the very top who prevented a general strike. Mm. Particularly Ken Douglas. I was, I was just about to say Ken Douglas would be the name that came to mind for me. Um, he thought he was doing the right thing. But quite literally, they put down their weapons and Labor took them away. And then when they went to get them again, they were gone. Well, he ended you know. up being the CEO of some of the banks and so on. Because, because there was a marrying of thought there that those, some of those went into. And, and people, you know, 
I'm sure many of the union guys would look back and say that they were abandoned by their senior people in the same way that I voted in that election. That was the first election I got to vote in and I felt completely abandoned by the politicians that I put into Parliament at that time. I guess to some extent people accepted neoliberal economics. They didn't know most... I mean, I remember... Partly, I never accepted it because I was I lived with neoliberal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, America has been neoliberal for a long time. Mm-hmm. In fact, Probably even forever. before Reagan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In some variant or another of it, yes. And so, when I saw what they were doing, you know, yeah, but I, I saw most it of us in New Zealand had no idea what neoliberalism or what uh, how this would destroy unions, how it would. Uh, Affect housing and employment. Yep, you're quite right. Except there were some who. I mean, I. I mean, I think the people, Treasury knew. Well, those who were bringing it in knew exactly what they were doing, yeah. and there were some of us. I mean, I. And they succeeded because they, uh, neoliberalism has succeeded in moving um, wealth and resources from the many to the few. It's also succeeded that it's lasted for 40 years, so there are many people who are voting now who can't remember any other system, um, and therefore we're now caught in the system and it's going to be very hard to break back out of it. But I was in opposition to it back then at the age of 20, and I remember a few people mocking me, and, and my mate Jim Anderton, they used to say, but I'm like, this is what's going to happen. And I remember my friend was, John Doig was president of OUSA at the time, when they brought in the full, first full-time student. And he's like, I don't want to be called an FTS. He said, there's something wrong here. This is going to cause problems. And now look where the universities are now. And again, in the last six years, who was in government? Who had an opportunity to reverse any of that? They didn't. Now they're out and they're going to be crying that somehow this was a move to the right. And I still think it was a failure of the left to act. If if you live in a a market society and you refuse to to raise taxes, how are you going to pay for infrastructure? How are you going to make it happen? Exactly, and that and the thing is that this is probably the only time where you take ha- your house analogy and it actually does work for government. How many people paid cash for their house? Right, you've got a really big capital investment. Every day you wait on investing it, it gets more and more expensive just because of inflation. So the sooner you can do the work, the better. And the only way you can do that is you have to take out a loan to do it. So when we do big capital infrastructure spends, they're always done with debt. And people go, oh, look at the debt. It's like, and I want to give you an example of what it means to do something in a certain time and then wait later. Christchurch is building a stadium exactly the same size as ours. Ours costs $300 million. Ten years later, theirs is costing $600 million. And that's what the cost of waiting 10 years is on a project that size. So if you're putting in a $300 million road, and if you try to do it with cash, it will cost you $6,700 million by the time it's done versus taking out a $300 million loan and then paying it off. We have the lowest debt of any of the OECD countries. And the reason that we do that is to make standards and poor's happy. So we're making them very happy but we have one of the worst transport systems in the world for modern nations. We have a failing healthcare system. We have the universities failing. 
if we had been spending the capital spends that we should have been spending in those areas, we would have a good public transport, a good transport system in general, good three waters. All that would be in good condition. But we deliberately underinvested because because we've made government too small. And now, quite literally, you can only do this for so long before it starts falling apart, and we're at the falling apart stage. Well, that's what happened in America. If you look at some of their infrastructure, mm. especially in the Rust Belt. Mm. I mean... Bridges in Minneapolis falling from the sky. Being the worst one, yeah. But, you know, um, they can't drink. Well, we're headed that way, but... Um, well, now the, we're going to... The water became so bad that people were being poisoned in major cities in the... Well, the Flint one was probably yeah, the most the extreme. Worst, yeah. um, the... We are heading in that direction. And the answer if you are looking, listening to economists, is that the government will have to take out the debt in order to achieve the outcomes we need. But we just had a Minister of Finance who was more worried about standards and pores, and so we won't take that debt out. And so we're going to have to transfer that debt now into direct payments, and that's why I've always been worried about three waters. We're going to see water bills go through the roof because we're approaching it from the wrong direction, economically speaking. And because of that, it's getting harder and harder and harder for the people at the bottom. Isn't that usually a result when you when you hear the word user pay? Well, user pay is, going to, is a classic neoliberal policy, right? And I raised this with the local MPs when they brought this stuff forward. I said, this is classic neoliberal policy. You're commoditizing the water, your, your unit charging it directly to the person in the house. <laughs> I got really offended when I called it neoliberal policy, but it is. Right? This should have been – the capital requirements should be coming out of debt that is generated by both the local governments and by the, by the central government, and then you pay that debt off later. That's, that is how you do it. That is the appropriate economic response. Well, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks, Marvin. It's, we'll have another – It's been a blast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll have more to talk about in a few months' time, I'm sure. Thank you very much, Mark. Thanks a lot. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.